turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 8. In our day, we are constantly bombarded with messages and news. We see billboards and TV ads all the time. We hear radio jingles and we scroll through endless snippets of news and updates uh, and offers in our Facebook and other social media feeds daily. So when we hear something from a real person that we know about a new store that opened up, about a new restaurant in town, or about a baby who was born, we listen. It's almost like we listen even more today to a real-life person than we used to. The most powerful advertising has always been word of mouth. And the biggest draw has always been something new. Now, what does that have to do with 2 Kings 8? Well, when it comes to church, what we do week in and week out, those of us who are here all the time, is not new or exciting in the sense of some new deal, some new offer, some new place. Too often, the wonder of what God has done escapes us. It becomes same old, same old, been there, done that. It isn't on our tongues as the latest best thing to hear and share. We too easily lose the wonder of how great the gospel is and what wondrous things Jesus has done. Today, I hope we can rekindle that wonder by shifting our eyes to a less familiar passage. I want to transport us back more than 2,800 years to the kingdom of Israel and the time of around 850 to 800 B.C., before Christ. I trust that what we find here in this unfamiliar passage will remind us of what God has done in other times and ultimately give us a greater hope and confidence that our God is still at work today in our lives and in our church. So with that, let's go ahead and get to 2 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to read the first six verses. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, 
whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would use this message and use your word to accomplish what you have intended for it today. You Only you know our hearts and where each of us are at in our Christian life or in our life <clears throat> before finding the gospel. I do pray for the children. I pray for all of us and those who wish that they could be here but are hindered by illness. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this service for those who listen to it later. We also just ask that you would be lifted up, that you would move in our hearts and in my heart, give clarity and direction today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I was reading this passage and I was stuck with the phrase, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And so that is the title of our sermon today, All the Great Things He Has Done, because of course, <clears throat> God is the one who was doing the things that Elisha did through Elisha, the prophet of God. And <clears throat> some of you may already know or think you know where I'm going with this message, but ultimately we'll see Elisha is a picture of Jesus Christ. And we should be saying all the time, one to another, tell me all the things that Jesus has done. Tell me the stories again of what he did in the Gospels. Tell me again what God is doing in your life. How did God answer prayer in your life this month? What, what great things is God doing around the world? What great things is he doing in our church? Who is going to be baptized? What is he up to? Um, I just want to walk through these, eight, these six verses quickly and then jump into how I'm going to talk about this. But for background, um, so we, we come to chapter 8, verse 1, and the section about Elisha's great works that he has done is really 2 Kings chapter 2 through 2 Kings chapter 8 with a little bit more added on in chapter 13. But that's the bulk of Elisha's ministry, which is unusual in the fact of in the if when you read 1 Kings through 2 Chronicles you really don't stop very long on any one king you don't stop very long on any one event except for the building of the temple in Solomon um, and then except for Elijah and Elisha they they maintain a really big portion of the account and then you go back to a king every 10 verses or so so there's something important for us to see in the Elisha stories. And so in chapter 4, Elisha has met this woman who offered to build him a little house. And if you've ever heard the phrase prophet's chamber, someone's heard of that. I know my parents and I <clears throat> on the mission field, on deputation, spent too many nights in prophet's chambers. Um, but this woman was the first prophet chamber builder. Uh, she had her husband do the work. And uh, he built a little house, a little hut on top of their roof so that whenever Elisha was in the neighborhood, he would go and spend 
the night at their house. So she was a well-to-do woman, and she had a family, she had connections, but she didn't have a son. And Elijah asked, do you want me to talk to the king for you? Is there anything I can do to repay you? And she says, no, I'm fine. And he says, well, you're going to have a son. Well, my husband is really old. It doesn't matter. God is going to do this. So they have a son, and then the son dies. But the woman has faith, calls for Elisha, and Elisha raises her son from the dead. And then, now time passes, her husband, who was old, is now dead, and a famine is coming, and Elisha remembers this woman, and he tells her, hey, you need to leave because it's going to get bad. You need to go somewhere else. And so she does. She leaves for the famine, and she goes to the land of the Philistines, which is closer to the sea, so there's water and better crops there. better able to withstand the famine. She comes back, and as she's coming back, the king, who early on in Elisha's ministry didn't exactly appreciate him, now, even though he's a wicked king, his heart is softened by seeing all that God has been doing through Elisha. And he just randomly so happens to be talking to Gehazi, a servant of Elisha, a former servant, because now Elisha has given Gehazi leprosy as a punishment. We'll get into that later, possibly. But anyway, he's talking to this outcast. He must really be motivated to talk to him, though, to seek out a leper and say, hey, I want you to tell me everything that Elisha has done. I'm just really interested in the things that Elisha has done. And so he starts saying everything that Elisha has done, and then, lo and behold, here's the woman who happens right there. Talk about a divine appointment. And God provides indirectly for this woman again through Elisha by just hearing the message about what Elisha has done. The king is softened towards her and doesn't just give her back her land. He gives her what she would have earned had she stayed in the land those seven years. So God provides, God cares for this person. And evidently, over the ministry period, the the implication is this is years, years, um, that God has been working in Elisha. There is rumors and stories. People are talking about what God is doing through the prophet Elisha. People are talking so much that even the king, who's a wicked king, is wondering, okay, so what exactly is God doing through Elisha? And of course, one of the, probably the one story that most of us would know of Elisha is when he heals the man from Syria who has to wash in the, in the Jordan River seven times. And he says, well, that's, you know, dirty water. I don't want to do that. But how did that man come to Elisha? a captive girl that was taken captive from a raid in the land of Syria is talking about how great Elisha is and what God has done through him. And hey, you you have leprosy, go see Elisha. God is doing great things with Elisha. So that's really what this passage is telling us is that these miracles, they're probably not everything that God is doing with Elisha. There's other things happening too. These are the ones that are chosen and recorded for all time. But God has been at work in Elisha. 
So we're going to look at all the great things God has done in Elisha and how we can benefit from them. And it's going to be three simple points. So first of all, it's going to be Elisha's mission and Elisha's miracles and Elisha as a model. So Elisha's mission, Elisha's miracles, and Elisha as a model. So background to Elisha's mission. Background to Elisha. It's very common, don't feel bad, but for some reason, Elisha, his predecessor, the, the prophet man of God before him, had a very similar name, Elijah. And ever since you were in Sunday school, you've probably been confused about Elijah versus Elisha and which one did what. So I'm sorry we don't have time to clarify all of that for you. You'll just have to buckle your seat. We're going to give an overview here, but it's, the story starts with Elijah, with a J, and then it passes on to Elisha with an S-H. So Elijah was given a mission to confront the worst king that ever lived in the nation of Israel. And I have to just do a side note here. Israel, at this time, was divided into the kingdom of Judah, where there were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and then the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, which were the ten tribes which followed did not follow the son of Solomon, but followed Jeroboam. Anyway, at this point in time, the kingdom of Israel is right at its zenith of influence in the world. Um, Ahab's dad's name was Omri, and he built really an empire, a stronghold in Israel. And Ahab inherited that, and he married Jezebel. And probably everyone's heard of Jezebel. And she's definitely the, the most wicked woman in the Bible. And Ahab is her sidekick or husband. And so they are pretty much doing whatever they want. They're getting rid of worship of God. They're setting up temples to Baal, which is kind of a new thing for Israel to care about. It really starts with Ahab and Jezebel. And so Baal, which is a false god, is Baal worship is everywhere now. Um, we find out that one of the prophets at that time um, hid 50 men in a cave to keep them from being killed by Jezebel. She was going after everything to do with God and Jehovah and worship of him. So in that background, Ahab, um, Elijah comes on the scene and he confronts Ahab publicly. He proclaims no rain for, seven, for three and a half years and there's no rain. Um, he goes in hiding. The whole nation's looking for him. And then there is the Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where he says, if the Lord is God, serve him. And if he's Baal, serve him. And he lets the prophets of Baal try to call down fire from heaven to prove that their God is real, and they can't. And then all he does is pray one prayer, and boom, fire comes down from heaven. And God proves that he is the Lord. And then there's a purge and 850 prophets of Baal and similar people are killed. But yet that is still not the end because he runs away. Elijah has to run away fearing for his life because Jezebel is going to come get him. So Elijah was very confrontational. He was very public in his ministry. He approached kings and then... Um, did powerful, amazing works in 2 Kings chapter 1. He brings fire down from heaven, 
two more times to destroy um, army men from Israel who were coming to capture him at the king's, the wicked king's command. So he's all pizzazz, power, confrontation. And then Elisha has, is a more soft-spoken approach. And he shows more of the goodness and love of God as well. So God revealed to Elijah that there are still 7,000 men who did not bow the knee to Baal. There's still a remnant who's faithful in Israel. And in these books, we see that there are prophets, bands of prophets and wives of prophets who are following God and they're not following Baal. So there's more going on here. And, and Elijah chooses Elisha and then Elisha has a request. He wants to be given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that's at the time when Elijah is ready to leave this earth and to, we would say, die, but the text doesn't say that he died. It says that he went up into heaven. So Elisha is able to get a double portion, and, and that does not mean that he gets twice the spirit that Elisha has. The double portion is what the firstborn would have. It's talking about the inheritance. He is inheriting the role of the leader of the prophets from Elijah. So Elisha wants to be the prophetic successor to Elijah. And he sees Elijah going home. And there's a prophecy that Elisha, Elijah had given him saying, if you see me going to heaven, you will get what you want. And you will be able to have what you've asked for, the double portion. Now, the rest of the story in chapter 2 shows how the other prophets finally come to terms with Elisha. He is the chosen one from God. So that is um, Elisha's request. And then Elisha's ministry, his is less public than Elijah. He does confront a few kings. He does have prophecies to give. He does work with the king. But he also works with the common people. And he has a longer ministry. He ministers for about 50 years and he performs more miracles. Elisha's ministry, his emphasis in his miracles is on God's love and favor, as we'll see. And his ministry also has an unusual emphasis on Gentiles. Naaman of Syria, Hazael, king of Syria. Other Gentiles are blessed through Elisha's ministry. And many of his miracles are done for individuals or for the prophet community, at least at least a quarter of them are done for the prophet community, from what I can tell. But in the wider scope of First and Second Kings, God has a plan for why Elijah and Elisha are given so much space. God's prophetic ministry through Elijah and Elisha was to call Israel to repent and to come back to the Lord. It was to remind them of the covenant promises and judgments that were built in to them being God's people. Judgment was promised, but he was giving them hope, too. He revealed himself to be stronger than Baal, as we'll see, and the false gods. And the other emphasis is Israel was, did not include the temple. The temple was in Judah. And Israel had no temple, and at the end of Second Kings, they're exiled. And God's people don't have a temple anymore. Any of them don't have a temple. And so this emphasis on Elijah and Elisha highlights the fact that we don't need a temple. We need the word of God. We need the prophecy. 
We need to worship God himself. And God is bigger than a temple. God is bigger than one nation. God speaks through his people, through the prophets. And then this kind of launches the writing ministry of the prophets that we get with Hosea, who followed after, just a few years after Elisha, Hosea started one of the first prophets to write scripture. So um, throughout Elisha's career, numerous kings rise and fall. And at the end of Elisha's life, the king at that time, Joash, recognizes in Elisha the hope of Israel. By the end of the account of Elisha now, it's like the truth is out. The kings really, know, they don't really do anything. The kings are rising and falling based on what the prophet says. So the prophet says, hey, Jehu, you're going to be king. He goes, I am? Yeah, you're going to go kill these other guys who are bad. And he does. And then over and over again. So by the end of Elisha's life, in chapter 13, verse 14, the king comes to him on his deathbed, and he, he talks to Elisha, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Which is kind of a weird phrase, but <clears throat> that phrase is what Elisha said when he saw Elijah go to heaven. The exact same words. And what it is saying is that the true nature of God is he's the one in the chariot of fire. He's the one who protects Israel. The chariots of God are the ones who are going to rise the nation up, not the man, the, the strength of man. So the king recognizes and he calls Elisha my father, which is something that a king wouldn't call anybody if the king thinks he's, he's the greatest but he calls the prophet my father. So by the time of Elisha's death, the, the nation realizes that really the hope that they have is not in any particular king because they're getting battered around like, like kids by these huge powers of Assyria in the day. Their only hope is in God, the God of Israel. So that's the point of the Elisha and Elijah um, ministry. So that's Elisha's ministry. The second point, quickly, is Elisha's miracles. Now, I wish I could read all the miracles. They're so good. But it's only six or seven chapters, and you can read them yourself this week if you want to. I'm going to list some of the miracles of Elisha and just think about how significant these miracles are and how some of them sound an awful lot like other miracles that happen. And I'm going to read a couple of them because I want us to get the flavor of the great things that Elisha has done. So <clears throat> when Elisha is left alone and Elijah has gone to heaven, he picks up the mantle of Elisha and he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he parts the Jordan River, just like Elijah had done. And he walks across the river on dry ground. That's chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And then he, right away, the men of Jericho say, we've got a problem, the water is bad. What's interesting is that the water in Jericho being bad was because of a curse that Joshua set on Jericho. And Elisha reverses the curse and he heals the water for the people. Then Elisha is mocked, and this is a story that is quite interesting. Um, it's not 
is not a favorite popular story today, but Elisha is on the road going somewhere, and a bunch of kids are mocking him, laughing at him, uh, 42 of them, and he sends bears, and they kill the kids. You say, what in the world? Well, they were bad. They needed to be judged, and it's quite interesting if you think about it, but the what's really going on is Leviticus 26 is, says one of the covenant curses is if you do not follow my covenant, I will send beasts to devour your children. And so that's what's happening with the bears ravaging the youth. Then he has water in the desert. He says, you know, you've got an army of Moabites you want to take over. I'll tell you what to do. Dig a bunch of ditches. That makes no sense. But he knew that there was going to be a snow melt, there was going to be water, and so they dug ditches. The next day, boom, there's a whole bunch of water. How does water help you? Well, the water shined off of the reflection of the sun, and the other army saw blood. And they had some omen. They thought it was a bad omen, and they, they, they left. And they were able to defeat the Moabites or have a great victory anyway instead of being destroyed all because they came to Elisha for help. <clears throat> now I'm going to read chapter 4 which is on the heels of that. Chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 really quickly. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside and borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and she poured as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So, interesting story. A destitute widow, she's going to lose her sons. He says, borrow as many pots and pans as you can, because this is going to help you. And a little jar of oil pours out and fills all the pots and pans with oil and she's able to sell them and not have to have her debts cause her children to go into slavery. That is kind of minor and insignificant. Who cares really about this lady in the scheme of the world? Well, God cared and Elisha cared and he did a, a miracle for her kind of like Jesus cared for so many individuals in his day when he did his miracles. Then another miracle, which we don't have time, the rest of chapter 4 is about the Shunammite woman from chapter 4, verse 9 through verse 37, which we talked about getting a son and then seeing the son be born or be received again from the dead. And then there's death in the pot. They, the prophets are hungry because there's a famine, and so anything they find in the field goes in the pot and goes in the belly, and well, something they found in the field is deadly and bad. And he's able to cure the pot by pouring in some flour. It's a miracle because flour doesn't you know, do anything like that. 
but God did a miracle and there was no harm in the pot. And then verse 42 of chapter 4, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men. Now the implication is these are prophet, a, a band of prophets with him that they may eat. <clears throat> but his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 small loaves of bread, small enough to be carried by one guy in a sack. So he was able to multiply bread, multiply loaves to feed a large number of people. That's another miracle that Elisha did. And then the healing of the leper Naaman and Gehazi was judged with leprosy because he wanted the gold and the money that the, that the Syrian had brought and that Elisha had turned down. Then there's an interesting story of a prophet who's chopping wood in the forest with an iron axe head that he had borrowed. And he, he goes back for a really big swing and the end of the axe head flies off the end into the water and an iron axe head is very expensive in this day and age and he says uh oh what do I do Elisha and Elisha has compassion he throws a stick in the water and the axe head floats to the top of the water and the guy is able to recover the axe head then in chapter 6 verse 8 through 12 I'm going to actually read verse 11 so he's hearing the, the plans of the Syrians are being told him, being told to the king of Israel. So they're trying to avoid these raids. And the king of Aram wonders, how do they know where all of my soldiers are going to be? And he finds out that Elisha is telling him. And they said, whatever happens in your bedroom, Elisha knows about it. And he tells the king. <clears throat> and so he's like, we're going to go get this guy. So... In verse 13 of chapter 6, he says, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent three horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So he gives sight, spiritual sight, to this man who can now see what was really there that he couldn't see before. And then he takes that army and he puts them in a stupor he leads them to the middle of Samaria, the capital city, and then they finally figure out where they are and they're surrounded and they're captive. So that's a miracle that he did. And then he lifted the siege of Samaria. We don't have time to talk about that. But then I want to read one more section of what Elisha did. Chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. So Elisha died. And they buried him. 
but there's more. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So even after death, Elisha's tomb provided life for a dead man. Quite an amazing accomplishment that God has done through Elisha. Now one purpose for these miracles is to show that God is greater than Baal. And I won't go too far into this, but um, the Ugaritic Baal had power over certain things. This is what he was supposed to be. He had power over fire. Remember Elijah? Fire from heaven, and he couldn't bring any fire down. Baal couldn't. He had, he had power over rain. And again, Elijah said, no rain. And they, they worshiped Baal all those three and a half years, not a drop of rain. He had power over food or oil and meal flour. Both Elijah and Elisha had widow ladies that they were able to make their oil and meal and flour um, come without any help from Baal. He, he also, in some instances, was the one who would give you children. He was a fertility god. Well, it didn't help the Shunammite, but God was able to give the Shunammite a child. Um, healing, again, Elisha and Elijah healed. And then resurrection. Elijah and Elisha both had a resurrection that they, that they gave, and including the one for, for Elisha's bones we just read. Ascent to heaven, the Baal was supposed to ride clouds up. And what happened to Elijah when he went to heaven? He went to heaven on a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. And then defeating the river god. So Baal, in the myth, he, he would strike the river god and kill it. And Elijah and Elisha both took the mantle and struck the river Jordan and split it in two. So they were enacting out how God is greater than Baal. So to us, that just goes over our head. We don't see that. But to those people, it's a direct power encounter that our God is bigger than your God. The true God is the true God. And then the other points about Elisha's miracles, they're mostly intimate events. Four of them are done to help the prophets. Others establish his authority or rescue the nation. And they reveal God's love and grace, um, food for the hungry, giving a long-desired son, helping find a lost axe head. Um, even in the midst of a falling away from true worship, God remains active and available. He loves and woos his people back to himself. And then the dead man who came to life from Elisha's bones is a symbolic picture that the ministry of the prophets and the central place of the word of the Lord can bring life to the dead. And it surely spoke to those people who were exiled and away from home that there is life in the power of the word of God. He can make the nation come to life again. And then finally, Elisha as a model. And we don't have a lot of time, but the Bible often divinely intends patterns or types that point to a greater reality. So a type can be an event like the Exodus or the Passover. It can be an action or a ceremony like temple worship or sacrifices. It can be people like Adam or David that parallel a later biblical reality. And the type must have both similarity or correspondence and also a heightening or intensification that 
the reality that the type points forward to is greater than the picture or the type that was in the past. And a type must also have scriptural warrant or basis for it. But based on all of those criterion, we do see Elisha as a couple different types of types. There's types from the Old Testament to previous Old Testament characters. So Elisha was a type of Joshua taking the leadership from Moses. Elijah is compared with Moses. He stands in the gap for the people all alone like Moses does. He interceded for them. He punished the wrongdoers. He also goes to the mountain and sees God. And Moses did that as well. And like Moses, he crosses water on dry ground, and he appoints a successor. And Elisha, like Joshua, takes up the position of Elijah. He also crosses water on dry ground in the area of Jericho, which is where Joshua did it. And like Joshua, Elisha's name means God saves. Joshua fought human enemies, but Elisha grapples with Baal worshipers and fights a spiritual battle for men's hearts. But then Elisha is also a type of Christ. Elijah had to appear before the Messiah came. And according to Jesus, he did in the person of John the Baptist. Matthew 11 and Matthew 17, Jesus says that. John the Baptist dressed just like Elijah. Both Elijah and John the Baptist confronted an evil king and faced a bloodthirsty queen. Both are rejected by the authorities and then question their own calling. They both designate a successor who's going to be greater than them. Elisha and Jesus share similarities as well. Jesus' name <clears throat> means God saves as well. Both receive the Spirit on the other side of the Jordan and are surrounded by more disciples than their predecessor. They both are itinerant miracle workers. They both cleanse lepers. They both give sight to the blind. They both defy gravity when it comes to water. They both raise the dead. They both feed a multitude with loaves. They both minister to Gentiles. They both have a covetous disciple. They both have a tomb that gives life after their death. Now, in Luke chapter 7, there's a very interesting point of connection between Jesus and Elisha. In Luke chapter 7, Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now notice what they say. Fear seized them all, and they glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What's very fascinating is that Nain is in the same location as Shunem, on the same hill the exact same location. And of course, the people in Nain would have known that Elisha was their prophet. He had done a miracle raising a boy from death in their town. 
And so when they see Jesus come to their town, and when he raises a boy from the dead in their town, they say, stop everything, people here. A great prophet has come. It's almost like this, this might be the one. Someone coming like Elisha again. And that's surely what Luke wants us to make that connection. Elisha is greater than, or Jesus is greater than Elisha, and he did come and do works greater than Elisha. Now, Elisha's works are hailed in Syria, and they are talked about by outcast lepers and inquired after by hardened kings. And in the telling of God's works through Elisha, a woman is restored to her lands and her livelihood. In the telling of stories about Jesus, there is hope and healing available to all as well. He reverses the curse and, and saves us from sin. Now the stories of the works of God performed through Elisha have the power to awaken us to the greatness of God. God spoke through Elisha to the people of that day who were enamored by Baal and tempted to turn away from the God of their fathers. We too are tempted to give up and join the world around us and ignoring the Bible. We need to see God at work among us. We need to inquire after the God of Elisha and the great works that he has done. We need to awaken the greatness of the works Jesus did, which far surpass what Elisha accomplished. We need to be reminded that our God is real and his salvation is sure. He can give life where all we see is death. He can turn our hearts around. When Elisha saw Elijah ascend to heaven, he picked up his master's mantle. He was aware of the promise that God would be with him. And so he lifted his voice and he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he tested his faith and he found God ready at hand to part the Jordan and to do the many other works that God had called Elisha to do. Today we need to ask, where is the Lord, the God of Elisha? Where is the God who acted in Elisha and in his greater Lord, Jesus? The very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, according to Ephesians. Let us pray that God works to bring greater joy and renewed faith in our hearts today and throughout the weeks to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the story of Elisha and for the, all the great things that Elisha had done. And we thank you so much that Jesus, the stories that could be told of all the works that he, done, that he had done would fill every book that could be written, according to John. There's more than could possibly be told of what Jesus has done, both in his time on earth and also in his time in heaven as he works in the hearts of his believers. Through the history of the church, and through the history of this church, through our own history, we have seen your hand at work, God. We have seen Jesus Christ be faithful and true and show up time and time again. I pray you would awaken our hearts, help us to lean and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.